Hi folks, this is Christian Haynes from Gamers with Glasses, and today we have another interview, and I'm very happy to introduce uh, Jason Cordova. Uh, Jason is the creator of two tabletop role-playing games, the Lovecraftian Cozy Mystery role-playing game, Brindlewood Bay, which will be kickstarting tomorrow for its print edition. Uh, and The Between, a game about hunting monsters in Victorian London. Jason's also the editor-in-chief of the role-playing game magazine Codex, which features indie tabletop games. Uh, for example, that's where Trophy first appeared. And he's also head of Gauntlet Publishing, uh, which is publishing Trophy. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what the Gauntlet is? Yeah, so the Gauntlet is an online game community that basically has, uh, for, well, actually, first of all, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then, but yeah, we're thrilled. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an online game community that has three sort of like pillars, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, the first is it is a gameplay community. So we, we have a calendar uh, on the community side of the Gauntlet where we host, um, gosh, I think they do like I want to say they do like 100, 150 sessions a month at this point, which is pretty That's amazing. Impressive. Yeah. yeah. And then um, the second uh, part of the gauntlet is the podcasts that we do. Um, I am a co-host of one of those podcasts, uh, Fear of a Black Dragon, which is about old school RPG modules. Um, the any winning Fear of a Black Dragon. And uh, the third is the publishing part, which is the newest part of the gauntlet, but it is quickly becoming a major focus for us. Uh, like you mentioned, we have been doing the codex magazine for uh probably since like 2017 now but we didn't really start like do getting into publishing like super in earnest until around 2018 2019 um with the uh we crowdfunded a game called hearts of ulin which is about uh wuxia melodrama and that was a that was a, a modest success i think we had a lot of success with trophy which is the game that came after um and that's currently in the middle of fulfillment and now we are going to kickstarter april 26th for brindlewood bay so yeah why don't you tell us about Brindlewood Bay, uh, which, you know, I guess the sort of quick description is that it combines kind of the cozy mysteries of, you know, sort of Angela Lansbury murder she wrote with yeah, Lovecraft yeah. and horror. And I, and I have to just say, uh, it's both charming and wonderful mechanically i grew yeah. up watching murder she wrote with my mother um yeah, and so it, it hits that spot you know yeah. but yeah tell us about it sure yeah so as you mentioned brindlewood bay is a game about um it is a game that's inspired by murder she wrote as well as cosmic horror lovecraftian type fiction it's about a group of elderly women in the uh the fictional town of Brindlewood Bay in New England. These women are members of the Murder Mavens Mystery Book Club, and they use their, their skills learned from reading so many mystery books to solve murder cases that are happening in and around their town of Brindlewood Bay. Um, as they solve these murder mysteries, they start to become gradually aware of an occult conspiracy that connects the mysteries. And so eventually if you play the full campaign which is about 12 13 sessions or so you uh, they have to face the this occult conspiracy in order to save the town um and the game is like equal parts cozy and creepy that's what we like to say uh it starts a lot more cozy and gets more creepy um and depending on how you play it it can actually get downright like horror genre uh if you really like push in that direction with it depending on how things go uh, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a lot of fun. It's it's been out there in the world for about two years now. In uh, an edition, which 
we previously just called Brindlewood Bay, but now we're calling it the preview edition. <laughs> um, it's a 40 page zine edition. That's actually pay what you want. There's also a free, uh, you can also go, go, go get that preview edition just for free on the Kickstarter page. Um, so anybody who wants to check it out can just go do that like with no strings attached at all. Um, but yeah, that was out for two years and we used that two year period uh, essentially as a time period to get uh, to get a fan base around the game, to get people excited about the game, to teach them the game, because I think it does do some things mechanically that are pretty different. And we we also, we knew we were gonna need the time anyway, because we're doing Trophy. Trophy was taking up a lot of our sort of like, like logistical uh, energies, you know? And so now that Trophy's off to the printer though, we're gonna take Brindlewood Bay to the next level, which is the Kickstarter for some lovely hardcover books. Well, let's talk about those kind of mechanical distinctions mm-hmm. because it does have some things that are just really, you know, they're not necessarily all unique, but they're pointed and they're, you know, they insist on themselves. So one obvious thing that stands out are, is the clue system, right. right? Which there is a, for folks who haven't had a chance to look up into one bay, there's, you know, the way the modules, the adventure modules are set up is you do have a, a sort of fixed set of clues. Um, they're divided into clues that uh, are about the mystery at hand and then about the occult mystery behind the mystery at hand, but there's no fixed solution. Correct. So tell us about that decision <laughs> yeah, and tell us yeah. about how that works out. Yeah, so I guess I should probably start a little bit with like the development of Brindlewood Bay. I think that helps for the full context. So I was actually in developing another game, which is out now, by the way, another game called The Between. And The Between is a game of um, monster hunters in Victorian era London, which we might talk about more later, I don't know. But um, but I was I was doing playtest playtesting for that game in like late 2018 and having pretty good luck with the playtests. But the problem I kept running into is I knew I wanted it to be a mystery game and I could run it from my head like a mystery game. I did not have a structure where other people could run the mysteries like I run them, right? Which is kind of free form with no, with a kind of open-ended solutions, right? And so I knew I wanted to create and, and indeed needed to create like a really structured, systematized way for doing this kind of mystery. And I didn't want to rewrite the between several times in order to get it right. So what I did was I made the decision to create a smaller game in order to test out uh, this mystery system that I kind of had in the back of my head. And so I kind of put out in the world, I was like, hey, I'm gonna make a murder mystery game and I need like a theme, I need a setting. Do anybody have any ideas? And people on, I think it was Twitter were like, well, there's never been a Murder, She Wrote role-playing game that I'm aware of. And I was like, hey, I love Murder, She Wrote. I've seen every episode of Murder, She Wrote like three times. Like, yeah, that sounds great. And I also am a big fan of like a lot of the British murder mystery series, like Rosemary and Time and Midsummer Murders, things like that. And so I, this felt like a good fit. And then someone else had the idea of adding Cthulhu. They just said it as a joke. And I was like, wait, this makes a lot of sense because the old joke about murder she wrote is that Jessica Fletcher did all the murders. That's why she knows who did it, right? And that's why there are so many murders in one town, right? And I, because of that, I like just that, that that joke, it made me think of like, well, why would all these murders be happening in my little town? Maybe because they're they're connected in some way. There's a there's an occult conspiracy. And so it, so it just kind of ran with it. Um, but yeah, I used Brindlewood Bay as a sketch game essentially for the between, but it grew into its own thing and had its own fans and and became 
uh, it's, it's fairly popular as far as far as I can tell. And um, yeah, so uh, it, it now sits alongside the between the game that was originally made for. Uh, but to get to your question, the mystery system that's at the heart of that design decision or that sort of process. I am a big fan of the mystery genre, but I am not a big fan of mystery and investigation games and role-playing games <laughs> as a general matter. I, the very, in fact, the very, very first episode of the Gauntlet podcast, which was my first podcast, uh, this was about seven years ago. The very first episode was about mystery RPGs and everything I hated about them. And so like- It's a good way to start off. Yeah, yeah it's like, here's what I don't like. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but in the interim, I've had a lot of time to think about like what, you know, what was it about mystery RPGs that wasn't clicking with me, right? Like what, what, is, what is the thing that is not uh, working? And I think what I figured out big picture, at least at a high level, is that a lot of mystery and investigation role-playing games are trying to emulate books and films and TV shows, right? In the way they deliver the mystery. And I don't think that's always successful because books, for example, you have a forced perspective. So the author can keep you on track in the mystery, right? Films have lots of production values and actors and things to keep everything, to deliver everything properly. We don't really have anything. We don't have those advantages in role-playing games. And so to me, developing a mystery system for a role-playing game is about leveraging the strengths of the medium of tabletop role-playing games, right? This is really key. And so when I think about the medium of tabletop role-playing games and the strengths of that medium, I think about collaborative storytelling, right? Like it's a group of people sitting down, engaged in an activity that humans are very good at naturally, right? And so that was my, uh, that's the philosophy behind it. And so the way it works in Brindlewood Bay is there are scenarios, the mysteries, they're about two or three pages. They're very short, um, but they are two or three very, very information rich pages. So it's everything that the keeper, that's what we call the GM, what the, what the keeper needs to, um, to sort of guide what is otherwise a pretty collaborative process, right? So you have key suspects, you have a presentation, you have clues, you have some locations. The locations actually have invitations to the players to help build the scene of the location, right? Which is a fun little bit of tech. Um, and the way it works is no matter how the murder mavens, these elderly women, no matter how they investigate, whether they go here or go there, talk to this person or talk to that person, do archival research or whatever, the keeper can respond because all they're doing is just adapting clues from a list to whatever the murder mavens are doing, right? And then once they've collected enough clues, then as a play group, we have a discussion about who we think did it <laughs> based off the clues we have. And in order to get the max, you then roll some dice in order to get the best bonus on the die roll to determine if you're correct or not, you have to work in all the clues. And that process of discussing the clues, discussing who did it and working all the clues in, you are essentially solving the mystery right there in the moment. You are building, you're solving the mystery by building the mystery, right? Which is kind of fun. And to me, that is the power of the medium of tabletop role-playing games. I love Call of Cthulhu. I love Gumshoe. I love other investigation games. I don't think they've nailed this bit of it, right? I don't think they have that um, that feeling of like actually doing a mystery, right? And I think it's because they are trying too hard to be like films, right? Or, or books, um, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, that's the kind of core of it. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, I noticed that the, you know, each of the modules is relatively short, but it's dense. And my sense of it, you know, we were hoping to play last week. We're actually playing this week, um, our first session okay. of it at our uh, site uh, tabletop group. Um, so it'll be interesting. We're going from Morkborg to this. Um, that is, that so, is explaining. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think everybody is a little relieved we're going to yeah. this. Um, but my sense of it is, uh, you know, this is, it's got a lot of, shared features with a kind of powered by the apocalypse. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, this, the chassis crew. is powered by the yeah, apocalypse. Exactly. Sure. So, yeah, exactly. So, you know, and and along with that, with that kind of narrative-driven role-playing, it's like a lot depends on making sure you have a group that's willing to be sort of collaborative and, and talk right. things through. Um, but the, the great part about that is it does lend itself to this kind of less is more when it comes to adventure design, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think you're right the more linear you get, right? You can do like two or three branching paths, but it really feels like two or three branching paths. And as a player, you feel like you have that fork in the road moment where it's like, right. well, this or this. Well, and you need um, you need that negative space, right? Like I review modules on my podcast, Fear of a Black Dragon, and uh, not, not really review, that's not the right word. We analyze them, right, for play. And the modules that are very, very dense with information uh, and tell you every possibility, that's actually, that can actually be limiting in play, right? Because the GM feels bound to it and there's no flexibility there, right? Uh, and indeed, the module may not even work if people like go like left or right when they're not supposed to, right? So I think you do need that negative space. This is something about our publishing efforts that is um, pretty consistent across the way. I, w- I don't count Hearts of Olean here because that was made before we were sort of developing this philosophy, but for Trophy and the Between and Brindlewood Bay, there, there is this, mo- they, they have modules for one thing or, or adventures and, but they are these like sort of like highly focused, uh, essentially like toy box for the GM, right? And it's not that the module includes a story it's that it includes rich thematic details and narrative beats that you can always go back to as the GM, right? Because to me, that's what it's all about. I still like a, a traditionally GM'd game. That's my preference. But there's a way to do it to where the GM is posing questions to the players. The GM is inviting the players to fill in the world. In the case of Trophy, the dice uh, force you, the players, to create parts of the world, right? And and but 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 you do still have a GM sort of guiding things, and you still have a GM or the GM still has the ability to has something they can go back to as a touchstone. So that's really kind of what the scenario design is all about. It's about maximally useful information in the moment when the GM is like incorporating and improvising, right? So um, I think it's the best way of, of running a game, at least these games. Um, it's how I personally run games. And, and, and I've been very happy we've been able to sort of like codify a lot of that and systematize it for people. And I think from a GM perspective, I mean, one of the nice things is it doesn't require a ton of prep. And because I think part of what happens, right, as a GM is if you are doing like a gumshoe detective, if you're doing Trails of Cthulhu or something like that, you put all this time into learning a particar you know, pre-made module, and you're like, you want to use the information. And so right. when yeah, the players that, veer away, work, just, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, veer you back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I studied for this, you yeah, know, precisely. Yeah, yeah, um, um, yeah. I agree completely. I mean, yeah, and that's. I mean, I mean, I think you know, we have as our, we always have as a as a design name, but it was especially the case for Brindlewood Bay, that we want people who are brand new GMs, GMs who've maybe uh, are new to PBTA games or new to the style of game. Uh, we want 
people with like little experience or not as much experience in whatever way to be able to grab this and play it easily, right? And that is the single biggest point of feedback we get from people is I played this, either I played this with a group of new role players who'd never played a role-playing game before and they loved it, or I've never run a game before. I ran this for my D&D group and, and I had such a good time, you know, like, like, and that's super gratifying, right? Because that was intentional in the design. So, you know, where we're at is we're prepping to play Dad Overboard as one of the yeah. sort of suggested intro scenarios. It's the, the starter it's, mystery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's really nice. You have complexity ratings on the different mm. mysteries, which offers a nice kind of like gradation. You don't have mm. to do them in order, but it does offer a nice yeah, yeah. sort of difficulty, uh, you know, spectrum. Um, and... You know, so you do have kind of traditional mystery, um, have these paint the scene moves. You yes. do have a, a victim and NPCs surrounding them. You know, in this case, you have a dad overboard who's drowned, yeah, and you have, yeah. uh, you know, the kind of like smarmy rich family. Right, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's all too familiar to me from my time in New England, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, um, dad, over, dad overboard has the classics. It's like the classics yeah, of the genre, right? Yeah. 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 And so I guess my question is somebody who probably, you know, when I'm, when I'm GMing this for the first time, probably won't get too much into this is for you over the course of a campaign, what, how has the occult stuff to work its way into it? Yeah. Like, how has that come in when it's been successful or yeah. are there interesting ways where it's not been successful, which can sometimes also be um, I mean, I've always had good luck with it, but, um, but, but, but I, but I was, well, cause I was super conscious of this, right? Like I knew that this was the, the supernatural aspect is the part that um, that really has to almost like justify its existence in the game, right? Because the murder mystery game would have been just fine, right? <laughs> um, but I, I really felt really strongly that this was the right way to do it because I think it reflects my personal sensibilities. I think it reflects my personal taste in gaming. Um, and indeed the way I like to sort of like subvert people's expectations, right? The game is very subversive in its way. And this is one of those ways that it is. You know, you think you're playing this like cozy, you know, Midsummer Murders type thing, but then it starts to change. In the beginning, it just sort of peeks in at the edges. And then about five or six sessions in, it starts to really shift to be this like horror thing, right? And that gradual introduction of the supernatural stuff is um, is a really important, like it's it's a really important to understanding the feel of Brenda Wood Bay, right? It's a key part of the game. You can enjoy the game absolutely in a short series or a one shot, and you get the murder mystery flavor, and it's fa it's fabulous. But if you play the full campaign, you get that full sort of emotional arc, which is what I was going for. Um, so the way it sort of works. Um, so that it feels pretty smooth and not too jarring. And it should feel jarring to some degree, but like to where it feels coherent, I should say, is the keeper has the sheet called the dark conspiracy sheet. And this sheet is essentially a, a guide and a worksheet for how to unfurl the campaign. And there are layers that are unlocked as the mavens find what are called void clues. The void clues are not really clues for the murder mysteries. They're, they're context, maybe, but they're not really clues for the murder mysteries, not capital C clues, not mechanical clues. They're a timer. As you find more of them, you're getting closer and closer to facing the mavens. You're unlocking the different layers of the conspiracy, right? And each layer of the conspiracy, once you've unlocked it, 
unlocks a deepening of that part of the game. So one of the early layers is merely the lore and history of the town. We're not getting too much into the, the, the cult yet, but we are starting to learn a little bit about the history of the town and the keepers invited to work in certain historical aspects of the town, which might get the players to start thinking, huh, there's more going on here than we maybe originally thought. But then later layers unlock an actual, you learn about the cult itself. They're called the midwives of the fragrant void. You learn about, uh, or the, 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 the midwives can actually start attacking you in later ones. And then eventually you face them, right? And um, that pacing feels good to me in play. Uh, because the focus is still 90% murder mystery in the beginning with just a little touch of the supernatural. But as the mavens, but, but as you play, as the mavens mark certain parts of their character sheet, as they engage with certain moves, as the void clues come up, that there's a gradual ramping up of the supernatural aspects. And indeed, there's almost like a I'm a big believer in like the power of dramatic irony in role-playing games. So I I like that the players at a player level know there's something going on maybe because they just know about the game, right? But that the characters don't know, right? So as the conspiracy stuff starts to unfurl, certain scenes start to change to where in the background, dark shadowy stuff is happening that the murder mavens aren't aware of, right? That dramatic irony is really fun to play with. Um, it's the reason why in all role-playing games, I like to have strong distinctions between player knowledge and character knowledge, right? Um, I just think it makes for a better experience. Um, but yeah, I've never had any trouble. It's always felt fairly coherent. I mean, because the, at the end of the day, the mavens have a thing they are doing, which is solving murder mysteries, right? You can always kind of just return to that focus, right? And the stuff happening in the background is there and it'll re rear its head ultimately when it needs to, right? And um, yeah, it tends to go pretty well. Um, some people who are playing it in short series or like in one shot, they prefer to cut the supernatural stuff out. I think that's okay. The game works fine if you do, but I don't know. I think there's something fun about just some random weird shit happening all of a sudden, you know? It's those layers, and it's also it's also the fact that this can turn on the player, right? Like part of what happens is that they the player characters become sort of objects of concern, you know, for the, for the, for the cult yeah. that day. And we won't get too much into it, you know, for yeah. spoiler reasons um, for potential players that want to listen. Um, but yeah, no, it it does add some really interesting layers, and um, you know, it it sort of it does highlight one of the things that in both of the games you've designed, but also I think in a lot of the gauntlets publishing, uh, you know, this kind of, not exactly like every game you guys produce uh, is against the notion of power fantasies, right, but yeah. you do, you know, you, your games do seem to have these vulnerable characters um, mm. that are really sort of emphasized. Trophy, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking of, right? right? Like, yeah. Yeah, in the between too. Yeah, I mean, and even the smaller publications on Codex. I mean, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Finish your question. I, I'm kind of cut you no, off. no, no. That I mean, that is kind of the question. I guess um, to phrase it actually as a question. Um, what, what I suppose for you motivates that decision to really emphasize this kind of vulnerability? I think it's because our publishing team 
which is which came from the gauntlet and the gauntlet which came which is mostly a powered by the apocalypse focused community i mean all indie games but we really love pbta games uh you know apocalypse world and games inspired by apocalypse world they just have this like play ethos which is like um it's a sort of like you know play dangerously or lean into danger sort of ethos right like you got a bad role good <laughs> right that means something cool is gonna happen right it's that kind of thing so i think we just come from that sort of like play culture you know and that's how we like to play and so that's what the games we make are like right um i there is a certain joy in like min maxing and statting of characters and and doing like i love all that i, I prefer it in board games and card games now but um but in role-playing games i like that vulnerability i like i like knowing that if I roll well, then awesome. I get to narrate my character being awesome. If I roll poorly, well, that's also awesome. Uh, that because something really fun in the story is going to happen, something that's going to put my character in danger, right? Um, and I get to be awesome by getting out of that danger, or in the case of trophy, leaning into the danger and succumbing to it in a dramatic way, right? Um, so it's just it just it comes from the play culture that we were born out of, essentially, right? And um, it's not for everyone, I guess, but I think people would like it if they gave it a shot. Um, I think it's more, um, I think it's more nuanced and rich storytelling than just, I am now level 20 and nothing in the dungeon can beat me, right? <laughs> so. And I asked, does that mean, I guess for you both as just, you know, whether it's playtesting or just playing in your own time, um, does that mean you end up favoring sort of by default shorter to medium-sized campaigns? Or do you mm. do, do you find that you do end up with some longer campaigns? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it probably just naturally means you play shorter runs, right? Like you have campaigns that end, right? In the case of Brindlewood Bay, there is an end, right? With a small caveat, but it but it ends. Uh, the between actually does not, right? The characters end, but the campaign can keep going, right? And so they have like a shared living space that keeps going, right? And 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 uh, and the and the sort of abilities that their that their team got as a team continues on past the characters after they're done. Um, so it can go both ways, I suppose. Uh, Trophy Gold has a lot of that ethos in it, and it's theoretically an endless campaign, right? Um, so yeah, it. I think it's probably just for practical purposes, it, it, it does mean shorter campaign games, but it doesn't have to, I don't think. I will say that in Brindlewood Bay, you mentioned power gaming. Brindlewood Bay, the murder mavens actually have a lot of tools at their disposal to always win, right? Um, it's very, very rare for them not to win. Um, now, having said that, the way the game works is we can actually see them lose very badly to the point of being killed in a scene but then they have a tool they can use that basically reverses time and does something different, right? And so that again is my my play uh, preferences and ethos. I do like the I do like the idea that the characters can get killed, but I also want the story to keep going. So let's just see them get killed and then rewind and do something different, right? It's almost like a choose your own adventure book, right? You put your thumb in the in the middle, you know, to go back to the make a different decision, right? Yeah, I like that um, analogy. I think you use it in the yeah yeah in the GM yeah. guide. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's good. I was actually I was, you know, I have students right now who are doing uh, final project prototypes, and I was actually yeah. recommending that same kind of mechanic for a kind of rewind. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's the thing that like probably most groups who just try who for first starting with Brenda Wood Bay or the Between because Between has it as well. It's the thing they probably have the most 
um, not difficulty with, but it's like the thing that throws him for a loop initially because it is a very like out of character kind of mechanic, you know? It's not really like an in-character sort of thing. It's a player decision rather than a character decision. Right. Um, but it's fun though, once you play around with it. I I'm a big believer that I think part of like wanting to play games where the characters are vulnerable and the characters do face a lot of adversity and maybe are not going to make it out the other end. Um, I do think that it coming, what comes from that is a desire that philosophically, I think in games, I like it when the player gets to decide when that happens, right? When the player has control over the character's demise. I just think that's better for storytelling purposes. Um, and, and so in my games, uh, not, kind of in Trophy, which is not my game, but I publish it. But but in my games that I wrote, the Between and Redwood Bay, that is definitely the case. Like the player, I mean, the player has like, for the most part has full control over when and how their character retires from play. Um, now, eventually the, the rules will catch up to them and force it. But but up until that point, they have full control. And I just why don't like that. Why don't we talk a little bit about the between just because, you know, we yeah, talked sure. about it sort of sideways a few times, but um, yeah, where did the between come from? That's your monster hunting and Victorian London game. Uh, yeah. What inspired it? Uh, so the inspirations are pretty straightforward. I, uh, I, I love the TV show Penny Dreadful. I was really into it at the time. And I was like, wow, I wish somebody would make a game like this. And I knew there were games that were kind of out there like that. There's obviously gothic horror games out there, but I wasn't loving it, any of them mechanically. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to make it. And that was it. <laughs> that was really the whole thing. Um, I also liked the sort of, um, I like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style, like mashing together of literary characters and all that kind of stuff, right? I just, I love all that. And so, um, yeah, I, that, that was basically, it was just wanting to make a game inspired by those things. And so I, I came up with the player facing materials pretty quickly, actually, the various characters and things, because I modeled all the core playbooks after characters in Penny Dreadful. So that part was not too difficult as far as thematics. And I already knew well how to do a Powered by the Apocalypse game. So, um, and so, and then I had the idea pretty quickly after that, that it should be a mystery game. And then I started thinking about the mystery system and that led to Brindlewood Bay, as I mentioned, but, uh, but yeah, I love the between the between is um, it's uh, it's the game that we are spending a lot of time on right now, development developmentally. Uh, we are really, really encouraging people to create stuff for it. And in fact, in our discord and other places, we have a very vibrant, like uh, fan creation community for the between there's every time I log into our discord, there's like a new, a new playbook or a new module or something like every day, practically, um, which is awesome. And we are, we're really excited about the between from a design standpoint because we think that what the between as, as good as Brindlewood Bay is, we think the between really perfects and nails the whole experience, right? Because it's not just murder mysteries, it's all kinds of mysteries. It's not just one type of character, it's all kinds of different characters. And it's not a limited campaign, it's a full campaign. Now, Brindlewood Bay does a lot of things that the between doesn't do. Um, and and Brindlewood Bay stands alongside it easily, but but the between takes the concepts in the in Brindlewood Bay and definitely like goes into a different direction with them, a direction that's much more like, um, like a long term campaign game, basically. You know, so yeah, excellent. And so you know, kind of sort of surrounding both of these games is the Gauntlet as a community as well right. as a publishing house. And maybe you could talk a little bit about you know just from a practical standpoint if people want to get involved, but also just like what life in the gauntlet is like as it were um yeah. how does that feed your work so, 
I am not, um, I haven't been involved in the community side for a while because uh, I've been so focused on the publishing stuff, but I gather it's pretty easy to get involved with it. Um, I think you just, uh, I think, I know if you pledge on the Gauntlet Patreon, uh, you get invited to their Slack group and stuff like that. And you can start getting into their games and whatnot that they run. Um, I run the publishing discord, which is like the other half of it essentially. And that's uh, free and easy to join. Uh, and we're there uh, every single day talking about our games, talking about games inspired by our games, talking about other people's games that are inspired by just something in, in the community. We also have a trophy discord that's just for trophy because trophy's got a really big, like outside of the gauntlet fan base, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, I think for us on the publishing side, at least, I'm a big believer in like creation being part of the fun of role-playing games, right? I love the lonely fun GMing, right? That's my joy and it, like one of my joys. I love to GM and I love to create like write stuff as a GM, you know? And I, to me, part of being in publishing is encouraging people to create stuff for our games, right? Like, because I think that's part of the fun of it, right? Like I would never want to be so precious about our stuff that we did not do that, right? Because that would be, um, I feel like we'd be sapping a lot of joy out of the process and I would not want that for uh, for myself. And so I don't, we don't do that for others, but I, and I think people respond well to the fact that we do, are so encouraging of creation in the community. Um, a lot of those fan creations do tend to, or some of them do eventually end up in like official publications, you know, um, but they don't have to. And there's a, there's a, you know, small but thriving scene of people writing stuff for our games. And, uh, and we love that. I mean, and, and it's just a very supportive community. It's if you have an idea, there's always someone in that discord ready to like help you out. Um, and yeah, community's just always been a big, big part of what we do. And um yeah, I don't, know how, I don't know how to answer the question. I mean, it just, yeah, no, you know, community is important. And because to me, I mean, my whole, my whole thing is like from the very beginning, and when I say the very beginning, I mean the fourth grade, uh, role-playing games have, have always been like my way of finding friends, my way of, of having community, my way of finding self-confidence, you know, role-playing games have saved me in different ways, you know, and I always just want to create a space where people can feel that way about it, you know? Well, that's great. And, um, you know, one of the other spaces you help cultivate, um, and I imagine this, you know, you're quite hands-on with, um, unless your roles changed, um, which I apologize if I haven't caught that, that's okay. but yeah. you're also editor-in-chief of Codex. I am indeed, yeah. That's and so nice. yeah. that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> uh, it can be, yeah. Well, it doesn't come out as much as it used to. Um, okay. It used to be a monthly publication, and then pandemic happened, and now it's kind of a bi-monthly publication. Um It is. Codex is great. Um, it's That's a great segue, uh, because... So Codex came out in like late 2016, early 2017, somewhere around there. And the idea was we were getting ready to launch our Patreon for the gauntlet to support the podcast and things. And I just wanted something. I, I felt like we needed something to give to people apart from the podcast they can get for free, you know? And so we just created this little, at the time, it was like an eight page PDF of Codex. And it had mostly Dungeon World stuff in it because we were very into Dungeon World at the time. And um, and it just kind of became its own thing. It, it, it became a space, it, it kind of transitioned to be a space where people who 
have never been published in a role-playing game book before, role-playing game book before, or people who've never even done any creative writing before could pitch something and give it a shot, you know? And we would take it and do some editing and give it nice artwork and make it a really beautiful thing for people. And a lot of people whose games you enjoy now got their start in our pages, which we're very proud of, and artists as well, not just writers. And um, for me, I really love that I was able to get people who are not normally involved in role-playing games or who had not previously been involved in creating role-playing games, showing them what their work could look like in a beautiful final form, right? I've had many people tell me like that gave them the confidence to like actually go out and do their own thing, you know? And so that makes me super happy. Um, I think in a world where itch.io exists, Codex um, isn't as necessary because Codex used to be one of the few places you could get something published if you had no like experience in the hobby or the industry. Um, but it's still a good place to to sort of like feature things or launch something, right? Um, one of the games that came out uh, a couple of years ago and uh, called Back Again from the Broken Land, they had a very, um, they had a nice successful zine quest Kickstarter that its success was owed in part to the fact that it started as a smaller game in Codex, right? And then it became a bigger game later. Uh, Trophy was a small little thing in Codex that kind of grew into a bigger thing because we kept releasing new things for it in the magazine. And that actually taught us something about how to make a successful role-playing game, a standalone game. We go for this um, like slower approach where we take the time to get people accustomed to a thing before we go to crowdfunding, right? And uh, we like that approach. We think it's we think it's more sustainable than just like releasing things constantly, you know. And um, yeah, Codex is good. It's it's always been a sort of space for new people, new voices, but also like a launching pad for our own internal projects. Um, and it's a great place to play with like theme and visual design. Um, it's it's a great little thing. It's mostly digital. We did do a hardcover version of the first volume. Uh, we, we, we did that, a nice little book for that. Um, we don't anticipate doing that again, but um, but it's it's still a digital product. We love, we, we like that it's a digital product actually. Like the fact that it's a digital product just kind of goes to the sustainability idea, right? Um, yeah, it's been great to work on. It's, 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 not, it's not a, the gauntlet as a business, it's not a central part of our business anymore. Uh, but it's something we do because we love it. So. Great. Uh, is there anything that's come out in Codex recently that you want to highlight or that oh, you're yeah. especially excited about? Hmm. I think, oh gosh, let me think on it for a moment. I know it's hard. It's like choose your favorite yeah, you child or something. Edit my thinking out. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. You know, I think I would probably have to say, oh, it's such a tough question. I don't want to like, well, why don't we come back to that? Let's come back to that. Yeah, let's come back to that. That's fair. Like, yeah. um, I, I won't make, necessarily make you pick between your children. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just kind of maybe zooming out a little bit um, to talk more generally about the indie tabletop RPG scene. Yeah. Um, 
I guess one thing is just where do you think it's at right now? Uh, it's been a tough time for a lot of folks with the pandemic, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't even need to get into the way in which that's affected publishing and how that's put yeah. a real cramp in the style of uh, a lot of folks that have kickstarted, you know, that use Kickstarter to crowdfund right. things yeah. even a couple of years ago or so. Well, I mean, um, us with Trophy, I mean, Trophy was delayed yeah, because of, of the pandemic, right? I mean, and that was only because we we launched that campaign before there was a global pandemic. We had no idea that was going to happen. And it's a project with literally like 60 creators. So try to like wrangle that many cats in the middle of a global pandemic to get a project done, right? Uh, thankfully, we are at the printers now. I was going to say, <laughs> um, and yet there are, are the, there are full-fledged PDFs we are, now. Yeah, we are at the printers now. So that's that's our, 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 our job is done as a publishing team. It's now up to the printers and shippers. But uh, but yeah, um, which is why we're doing Brindlewood. We feel comfortable doing Brindlewood Bay now. Um, but yeah, the it is hard. I, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I have a I have a somewhat unorthodox view um, about this, the indie RPG scene. So I think it is. Um, I think a lot of people in the indie RPG scene feel an incredible amount of pressure from Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, right? There is this sense that Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition is so overwhelmingly dominant in the hobby that they can't find any breathing room or space for their projects. And I think that's probably true to a certain degree. Um, I certainly sympathize with the feeling behind it, even if I don't agree with it, because I actually think that this is the best time there's ever been for indie RPGs. Um, there's never been a better time because the popularity of 5e has just grown the space in such a big way. And that's just more people peeling off than normal, right? Finding other things. It's a, you know, it's a trite sort of a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing, but but I really believe it. I mean, if you look, just look at the numbers. I mean, if you look at the numbers of what was considered extremely, extremely successful indie RPG Kickstarters even five years ago, those Kickstarters are dwarfed by the very successful Kickstarters nowadays, right? I mean, just totally dwarfed. Yeah. And um, and I think that that, I think that's attributable to D&D. Uh, I just yeah. do. I don't play D&D. Uh, I haven't played D&D in many years. Uh, I've never played 5e. I don't think about it ever, <laughs> except that it's just a thing that runs into my on my social media timeline because it's D&D. Um, but I understand it. I understand its role in the industry, and I understand what it does for the industry. And I think you can either be mad about that, or you can try to ride that wave. You know. Right. Um, I mean, without denigrating. D and D or Five E, you know, it's a it is for a lot of people their introduction to role playing games, yep, and so it's yep. going to be the place where they get comfortable with a certain set of mechanics, or just mm -hmm. rolling dice for that matter, yeah, and yeah. you know, and role playing and uh, playing parts, and uh, then like you said, that gives you a huge base to peel off from, and they have, I mean, frankly, Wizard of the Coast has the resources to make these super affordable starter mm -hmm. sets, right? It's hard, um, it's hard to compete with, right? Yeah. it really is. Um, it's very hard to compete with and it can be frustrating. I get it. I get the frustration. It can be extremely frustrating because you see people all the time in 5e spaces like opining about how they wish right. D&D did this or did that. And it's like, well, hey, there's games over here that do this and do that, right? Like maybe you should try these games. You know, I totally get that. I, I get that frustration. Um, 
but to me, I just look at the numbers, you know, yeah. like I look at like Kickstarters that five years ago did like 30 or $40,000 and that's successful. And back then we thought it was amazing. Um, but I think in today's market, that would be considered a very modest success, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I think that just, that just shows how the hobby's grown. I mean, I have this, there's this quote from RuPaul. <laughs> RuPaul is like my, 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 uh, that's my, where I get all my, my theory, my, philo- <laughs> my philosopher. Yeah. There's a quote from RuPaul that goes something like someone turns 18 every single day. And what she means by that is someone every day, someone is breaking away from their parents or breaking away from expectations that have been put on them to discover new things. And so she's always thinking about that person, right? Like I'm always, always thinking about that person who just turned 18 and is looking and trying to find their way. I feel that way about role-playing games without sounding too condescending. I, I feel like every single day, someone decides, I want to try something new, you know? d and fun, but I want to try something new. And I want to be one of the people that they look to when they're trying to find something new, you know? So. I can't really think of a better place to stop than there. Uh, <laughs> so Jason, thank you. I mean, you always have to stop with RuPaul, right? Drop the yeah, mic. Right, yeah, exactly, um, yeah, yeah. So Jason, thank you so much for taking the time hey, and so what I know is a busy moment. Yeah, no worries. I loved it. Thank you.